You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you all, and welcome back to another breakfast show. You are joined by myself, Tukir Ahmed Tanweer, and also Imam Farid Ahmed here from the studio of Voice of Islam. Um, and uh, you know the agenda of the show um, the first half an hour 20 minutes of the show we like to run down some of the current news and after that we uh, we go into two of our main segments and uh, two of the main segments that we are discussing today from uh, 7.30 to 8 we'll be discussing faith groups in front line of community action during winter um, so we're looking at that um, and afterwards we'll also be going into our second segment uh, which is going to be a, a long longer segment and we will be looking at shared values in religion results in nation proce- uh, prospering and this is from eight to nine um, and for this particular segment, uh, we do have some experts that will be coming uh, on to the show as well. For example, we'll be listening to Timothy Longman, who is a associate professor of political science and international relations at Boston University, where he serves as director of uh, CURA, the Institute on Culture, Religion and World Affairs. So we'll be listening to him for the second segment, uh, followed by Professor Darren, uh, Professor Darren uh, Duke, who and Professor Darren he writes widely on history of religion, politics, and culture in modern America. And in addition to being an author of several books, he also uh, he has also edited several other books in American history, including most recently the. Um, the Rutledge of History of the 20th Century United States. So we'll be listening to him and uh, we'll also be listening to Professor Jake. Uh, and Professor Jake, he is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the UB and much of his research focuses on the effects of elite communications on members of mass public. Um, and his work has also appeared in outlets such as the American Journal of Political Science, Political Research, Quarterly, Political Communication, just to name a few. So uh, we'll be listening to these three um, experts um, in the second segment. Um, So let's start off this uh, news hour. um, And uh, firstly, I would like to go into the BBC to to the weather today and uh, this from BBC weather and the forecast for today is that today it says that today looks to be another dry and fine day for most with bright conditions for most and just one or two patches of cloud developing in the afternoon and the forecast for tonight is expected to be clear and dry for all uh, with little in the way of any cloud and another cold night uh, but not as cold as of late. So that is the weather forecast for today. And um, if any of our listeners do want to get in touch with us, uh, if they have any opinion they do want to share, uh, they can certainly do so by calling us on 0286877878. Or you can tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK. Or for more information, uh, you can go on our website on www.voiceofislam.com. 
www.sounds.co.uk and over there you can also um, access SoundCloud and uh, through that you can listen to the shows, um, the breakfast shows, the drive time shows. Uh, there's so many different uh, range of programs, living history, uh, you can access from the website. So if you are interested, do uh, do do go on that. Um, so I'll start the news, uh, our Imam Farid, and uh, I, you know, as as our listeners know that uh, we like to go through some of the news which is happening around the world, but also the news with regards to the Amdiya Muslim community, and. Uh, um, I personally, um, on a Friday morning, I personally like to go through some of the virtual uh, meetings. His Holiness, the world head of the Amdiya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand, has with the members of the Amdiya Muslim community around the world. And one such meeting recently took place on the 27th of November, um, and the world head uh, of the Amdiya Muslim community, the fifth caliph, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, he held a online meeting with members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Children's Auxiliary from Ghana. And His Holiness presided the meeting from MTA Studios in Islamabad and Tilford Wireless, the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Children's Auxiliary. Um, the members from this organization, they uh, joined the meeting virtually from the MTA Wahab Adam Studios in Accra. And following a formal session which began with the recitation of the Holy Quran, members had the opportunity to ask His Holiness a range of questions regarding their faith and contemporary issues. And what's one such member asked His Holiness the question, how children can develop a good relationship with their parents? Um, a very, very important um, question. And to this, His Holiness said that your parents always want good for you, and uh, they do not want anything bad for you. So whenever they give you any advice or they ask you to do something, that is for your good. So you should obey them, and if they ask you to go to school and study hard, get good marks, that is your betterment. And if they ask you um, when you come back home that you complete your homework first, then it is for your good. And if they ask you to keep yourself clean, it will benefit you because this is how you can have good health. And if they ask you to offer your five daily prayers, then it is for the betterment of your spiritual level. So you will get closer to Allah the Almighty in this way. And always think that your parents are the people who are the best people in the world, who love you, who care for you and who desire good for you. So always obey them. And uh, another another member uh, asked His Holiness what Islam says about uh, about applying makeup and nail polish and braiding your hair and wearing wigs. And uh, to this His Holiness, he said, and I quote, that Islam says that you can wear makeup, but always remember that uh, there are some other duties of a Muslim. You have to offer your five daily prayers when the time of for prayer comes, then you should not bother uh, that you are wearing makeup, that you should not perform ablution. You should do ablution and offer your prayers and you should not bother about your makeup then. And if only if you only care for your makeup and leave your prayers uh, and you do not f fulfill all the requirements which are needed in prayer, 
then you are committing a sin, you are doing wrong, otherwise there is no harm in doing makeup and you can also use nail polish, it covers your nails so there is no place between the nails and the nail polish. Uh, so you can perform your ablution with nail polish, there is no harm in it. And also the, the way the African women, they braid their hair, there is also no harm in it. And using the wigs, also there is no harm in it. So Islam permits all these things, but with the condition that it should not stop you or hinder you from offering your daily prayers or worshipping Allah the Almighty. So that was a, a brief um, snippet from uh, or a, or a brief uh, just a brief overview of the virtual sitting that is holiness had with the members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Children's Auxiliary from Ghana uh, but if any of our listeners do want to read more on that you can certainly do so by going on pressahmadiyya.com or you can also go on um, on uh, the YouTube channel MTA News where they feature uh, clips of the virtual sitting as holiness has with the with the members of the Muslim community around the world, so do also benefit from that. Uh, Imam Freed, uh, how are you doing this morning? Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, just um, I have something to present as well. Uh, I'm sure you watched the the match between uh, Morocco and uh, France and and France. So what yeah. what did you what did you make of it? Yes, uh, France. Obviously, obviously, it's not. You can say unexpected that they won, and they won handsomely, like two 0 But um, one could say that Morocco had their chances and they missed it. And to me, could have been two one at least. But it's just that sometimes it felt like they are reluctant to take a shot. They want to take a clean shot where they 100% know that it's going to be a goal, rather than taking a chance 50-50 and may go in, may go out, and they just don't, you can say, finish it off. <laughs> and obviously then French defense is good enough to repel that, but some of the chances I would feel as if uh, saved by the keeper, or you can say they just didn't take the shot at time. But yeah, France, obviously, they're, they're the world champions, defending champions now, and they're one step closer to becoming champion again. Absolutely, and and there's a there's even a um, an article regarding uh, the 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 final semi-final itself, and uh, uh, one article says that Morocco protest about the semi-final referee. Um, and this article reads that Morocco's football federation has protested to world governing body FIFA about the refereeing during Wednesday's World Cup semi-final defeat by the defending champions France and Qatar and uh, the FMRF is unhappy that the Mexican referee Cesar Ramos he failed to award a penalty in the first half to the North African when uh, Theo Hernandez he made the contact with uh, um, Sofiani uh, Bofal in the area and instead of awarding a spot kick which several um, felt that was appropriate. Ramos instead booked the winger uh, Bofal for a foul and the Moroccans were also unhappy that the holding down of the substitute uh, Samil Amala he as he awaited the delivery of a set piece also failed to prompt another look from officials and the first African and Arab 
team to contest a World Cup semi-final. Morocco lost 2-0 after an early goal left uh, by left-back uh, Hernandez, uh, which was followed by a late strike from the substitute uh, Randall uh, Kolo Moani. Uh, so I, I, I thought I also thought that uh, maybe you know this would have been a foul, um, uh, which you know which took place uh, in the first half of the game, um, but instead, to our surprise, you know the referee he gave <laughs> he gave a foul to the. Uh, to Morocco itself, that is, is uh, you know that they've committed the foul, um, but in fact, I thought Morocco they they really deserved it. The, the way they played, the the passion they showed in the game, it was absolutely amazing. Um, and uh, you know, just when we are um, looking at the World Cup and everyone is uh, sort of involved in it, uh, it's important to remember that Islam actually encourages as well that uh, we should look after our physical health. In fact, the the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing of Allah, the Almighty, be upon him, he at one place, he said that Al-Mu'min Al-Qawiyu, Khairu min Mu'min Azif, that a healthy believer is better than a weak believer. So, you know, we, we should look after our health and if we, if we are healthy, then we are able to perform our, our daily tasks as well. We're able to perform our five daily prayers as we are physically fit to do so. So as we are watching this World Cup, we, we should also remember that Islam also teaches that we should look after our physical health. Um, any, any other news, uh, Imam Farid, you wanted to share with, yeah, with the listeners? About the well, topic topic of discussion, which is uh, Twitter. And well, it's been in the news for quite a while. I'd just like to share an article on BBC, it says that Twitter accounts belonging to several prominent journalists covering the company's owner Elon Musk have had their accounts abruptly suspended. Reporters from the New York Times, CNN and Washington Post are among those who found themselves locked out of their accounts on Thursday evening. A Twitter spokesperson, spokeswoman uh, told tech website The Verge that the ban was related to the live sharing of location data. It comes after Mr. Musk vowed to sue the owner of the profile that tracks his jet. This list of banned journalists also include the intercepts <coughs> Mika Lee and uh, Mashable Matt Blinder, the independent journalists Aaron Rupar and Tony Webster. A spokesman from the New York Times called the suspension questionable for and unfortunate and said and said neither the paper nor the reporter Ryan Mack received any explanation for the action. CNN said that the impulse and impulsive and unjust, unjustified suspension of a number of reporters is concerning but not su- surprising. It has asked Twitter for an explanation and will reevaluate our relationship based on that response. Now, CNN's Donnie Sullivan, whose account was among those suspended, said the move was significant for the potential chilling impact it could have for journalists, particularly those who cover Mr. Musk's other companies. Mr. Musk did not comment directly on the suspensions, but said in a tweet that 
criticizing me all day long is totally fine but doxing me my real-time location and endangering my family is not he added that the accounts engaged in doxing which refer to release of the private information about the individual online receive a temporary seven-day suspension great thank you so much for that uh, another uh, particular news uh, this from bbc news is on uh, youth homelessness and uh, the article reads shelters are full every night so uh, the the article reads that after being uh, one uh, looking at uh, a specific uh, person um, looking at Caitlin who is 19 she says that we're trapped in a world where <clears throat> there's no growth and further she says that it's not easy to get a job save money go back to school um, and regarding her the article reads that after being kicked out by her parents she was left homelessness and turned to charities to build to help rebuild her life <clears throat> and homelessness charities say Ka- Caitlin is far from alone with the rising reports of rough sleeping and people at risk of eviction during the economic hardship and they are collectively calling for more support for young people at risk and the analysis from <clears throat> homeless charity Centerpoint shared exclusively with uh, BBC Beats reveals that their helpline is the busiest it's ever been since uh, it started five years ago. And Caitlin uh, wants to see more fundings for youth groups and education centres as well as more affordable accommodation. She says that there needs to be a solid service for 18 to 25 years old who are homelessness to help specifically so we get the support we need and help uh, cater to us. And she further says that if I could talk to the government, I'd say that they need to understand how different the world is and that it is keeping it keeps changing every year. The economy, the education, jobs, everything has changed. Um, and uh, as mentioned in this article, it's not just one person, but we see that Homelessness, uh, especially here in the UK as well, it's, it's on the rise, and uh, uh, you know it, it. As and specifically here, um, as a sla- you know, as a Muslim, it's our duty as well that we should help the poor and the vulnerable. Um, you know, looking at the two main fundamentals of the Sharia, as explained by the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the Hamdi Muslim community. He explains that uh, the two main fundamentals is one is that you should give due rights towards God Almighty and the second is that you should give due rights towards his creation and uh, the second aspect you know giving due rights towards his creation means that as a Muslim we should wherever we can try to help one another and you know especially helping within the community looking after those who are vulnerable it's a it's a great um, blessing in the eyes of Allah the Almighty, um, but uh, we will be looking. Uh, we'll be going after the uh, after a short break. We'll be going into our main two segments. We'll be looking at uh, faith groups in front line of community action during winter, followed by our second segment, which is shared values in religion results in nations prospering. So. 
that is the two main segments that we will be discussing um so we're just going to be going to a short break and we'll be back shortly after that You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Life of Muhammad peace be upon him. High moral qualities. Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him was always very patient in adversity. He was never discouraged by adverse circumstances, nor did he permit any personal desire to get a hold over him. It has been related that his father had died before his birth and his mother died while he was still a little child. Up to the age of eight, he was in the guardianship of his grandfather, and after the latter's death, he was taken care of by his uncle, Abu Talib, both on account of natural affection and also because he had been specially admonished in that behalf by his father. Abu Talib always watched over his nephew with care and indulgence, but his wife was not affected by these considerations to the same degree. It often happened that she would distribute something among her own children, leaving out their little cousin. If Abu Talib chanced to come into the house on such an occasion, he would find his little nephew sitting apart, a perfect picture of dignity, and without a trace of sulkiness or grievance on his face. The uncle, yielding to the claims of affection and recognizing his responsibility, would run to the nephew, clasp him to his bosom and cry out, Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Such incidents were not uncommon, and those who were witnesses to them were unanimous in their testimony that the young Muhammad, peace be upon him, never gave any indication that he was in any way affected by them, or that he was in any sense jealous of his cousins. Later in life, when he was in a position to do so, he took upon himself the care and upbringing of two of his uncle's sons, Ali, peace be upon him, and Jafir, peace be upon him, and discharged this responsibility in the most excellent manner. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, throughout his life had to encounter a succession of bitter experiences. He was born an orphan, his mother died while he was still a small child, and he lost his grandfather at the age of eight years. After marriage, he had to bear the loss of several children, one after the other, and then his beloved and devoted wife, Khadija, died. Some of the wives he married after Khadija's death died during his lifetime, and towards the close of his life, he had to bear the loss of his son, Ibrahim. He bore all these losses and calamities cheerfully, and none of them affected in the least degree either his high resolve or the urbanity of his disposition. His private sorrows never found vent in public, and he always met everybody with a benign countenance and treated all alike with uniform benevolence. On one occasion, he observed a woman who had lost a child, occupied in loud mourning, over her child's grave. He admonished her to be patient and to accept God's will as supreme. The woman did not know that she was being addressed by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and replied, If you had ever suffered the loss of a child as I have, you would have realized how difficult it is to be patient under such an affliction. The Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, observed, I have suffered the loss not of one, but of seven children, and passed on. Except when he referred to his own losses or misfortunes in this indirect manner, he never cared to dwell upon them, 
nor did he permit them in any manner to interfere with his unceasing service to mankind and his cheerful sharing of their burdens. In the idiom of the Qur'an, Allah is the name of the being whose excellences have reached the perfection of beauty and beneficence, and who suffers from no deficiency. The Holy Qur'an invests the name of Allah with all attributes, and thus indicates that Allah comprehends all perfect attributes. As he comprises every excellence, his beauty is obvious. By virtue of this beauty, he is named light in the Holy Qur'an, as is said. Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. This means that all light is but a reflection of his light. There is no excellence, the possibility of which is vouched for by reason, of which God Almighty is bereft like an unfortunate human being. The wisdom of no wise one can point to an excellence which is not to be found in God Almighty. The maximum of all excellences that a person can conceive of is found in him. He is perfect from every point of view in his being, his attributes and his good qualities and he is absolutely free from all defects. This is a truth which distinguishes a true religion from a false one. When a person experiences in the shape of beneficence those divine attributes which constitute his beauty, his faith is strengthened beyond measure and he is drawn towards God as iron is drawn towards a magnet. His love for God increases manyfold and his trust in God becomes very strong. Having experienced that all his good is in God, his hopes in God are strengthened. He continues to incline towards God naturally, without pretense and affectation, and finds himself dependent upon God's help every moment, and believes firmly, through the contemplation of divine attributes, that he will be successful, because he has experienced, in his own person, many instances of God's grace, favour and generosity. Therefore, his supplications proceed from the fountain of power and certainty and his resolve becomes extremely firm and unshakable. You're 
listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to the Breakfast Show. You're listening to myself, uh, Tokir Amitanweer, and Imam Farid Amit here from the studio Voice of Islam. Um, and we're now just slowly going into our first segment. But uh, do remember that if any of our listeners do want to get in touch, if they have any opinion, they can certainly uh, call in by calling us on 0286877878. Or they can tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK. Or for more information, you can go on our website on www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, Yes, so we're looking now at uh, faith groups in front line of community action during winter. Imam Freed, uh, what is this, uh, what's the gist of this story, if you can please uh, walk us through this? Yeah, so the gist of the story is that faith action, which supports a national network of faith organizations involved in social action, says it is confident that they will again provide effective responses to the needs of their communities in tough winter ahead. It says faith groups' experience of frontline work during the pandemic means they will be called on again to provide public services. Faith New Deal partnerships are due to be rolled out. The 16 faith-based groups will share £1.3 million to support vulnerable people. In the partnership with the councils, schools, police, health providers and voluntary groups, Faith Action has issued guidance to groups in their work with winter. In their work this winter, make warm spaces anonymous, billing them as social events so people don't feel stigmatized. Remember, the cost of living crisis is about mental well-being as well as economics. Make compassion and starting point of of help in the community. And well, that's it from the gist of the story. So as far as the Islamic perspective is concerned, uh, I have some... Yes. Yeah. So, the point here is that we are using all our means and resources available to us to bring man nearer to God, because if human beings can rely and really recognize their Creator today, they will be able to fulfill their responsibilities towards their fellow beings. Today, we and we alone can say that the book that was revealed to Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him 1400 years ago is still in in its original condition without an iota of change and it is a unique excellence of Islam that according to divine promise Allah has bestowed Islam with the guide inspired directly by Allah in the form of promised Messiah who has brilliantly presented to us the true teaching of Islam and regarding the Holy Quran, I just wanted to mention a point that uh, some time ago in Birmingham, there was a parchment discovered which was from the Holy Quran. It wasn't the complete Holy Quran, but some parts of it. And some of the people, they decided that, okay, let's just carbon date it. 
and uh, after that the estimate obviously what they found from their research was that it dates back to the time of holy prophet sallallahu to let's say roughly a few years before his uh, advent and from that a few years after his advent so chances are that it's indeed written by one of the companions of the holy prophet so, uh, peace and blessings of allah be upon him and moving on his uh, the what in prophet Messiah he says that what is the definition of jihad that the founder of ahmadiyya muslim community gave us a uh, hundred years ago he says that i have come to you with an order jihad with the sword has ended from this time forward but the jihad of purifying your souls must continue i do not say this on my my own accord this is indeed the will of god recall the hadith in sahih bukhari which honors the promised messiah by saying that he will lay down war that is to say when the promise when the messiah comes he will put an end to relig- religious wars accordingly i command all those who have joined my ranks to refrain from all such thoughts to purify their hearts to foster sympathy and to be compassionate towards the suffering they should spread peace on earth because that will cause their faith to spread in return they could not entertain doubts about how this will transpire just as god almighty without the usual means of intervention used the resources of the earth to create modern inventions and satisfied our physical needs by making trains that outrun horses he will in the same way unaided by human hands use his angels to fulfill spiritual needs great heavenly sign will be seen and numerous flashes of light will open my eyes that is taken from the british government and jihad pages are 16 17 and 18 so therefore if today we are busy 24 hours a day broadcasting the divine message in various languages through our television channels we are doing it because of the man of god who received the divine training if we <coughs> if we are trying to help the suffering humanity in the field of health and education or try to procure clean water or food from for the disaster victims we are doing it because of our true understanding of his of the islamic teachings provided to us by the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and on that i also have something to say basically uh hazrat usman uh, may allah be pleased with him was a companion of holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who was famous for his generosity and it says in one of the you can say narrations that when the prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him came to medina he found that there was a very there was very little fresh water and there and there was no source of fresh water in medina except for the well bere roma the messenger of allah said that who will buy bere roma and share it with the muslims in return for reward in paradise and hazrat usman says that 
and his father says that who will dig the well of where Roma and paradise will be his. Now before the arrival of the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, no one could drink from Bere Roma except in return for payment. When the Muhajirin, uh, the you can say the migrants came to Medina, they did not like the water. A man from Banu Ghaffar had a well called Roma, who and he used to sell water to buy the bucket full. The Prophet of Allah, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, "Will you sell it in return for a spring in paradise?" He said, "O Messenger of Allah, my family and I do not have anything else." News of that reached Usman and uh, may Allah be pleased with him and he bought it for 35,000 dirhams and then he came to the Prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and said will you promise me in return for it the same as you promised him he said yes he he said then I gave uh, give it to Muslims and it was said that Roma was a spring that belonged to a Jew who used to sell the water and then obviously Al-Usman bought it and he gave it for gave it to the poor people of Medina just as far as for welfare so he used to spend his wealth for the uh, betterment of other people and this is what the teaching of Islam suggests and he was obviously in the third caliph so we it's a comment upon us to follow the teachings of our caliphs thank you for that imam Farid, uh, for uh, a great uh, profound uh, islamic analysis on this particular subject uh, i also wanted to uh, say a few things uh, on this particular um, topic i mean as we are discussing that you know faith faith groups in the front line of community they are taking action during winter and helping those that are vulnerable. I mean, this is the news. This was something we were covering in the news as well. That you know, people are uh, homelessness is increasing as well, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the young youngsters, the young people who are in that sort of situation, is very difficult for them. Um, but what does Islam say with regards to helping the poor and the vulnerable? Um, if we look at uh, various uh, verses of the Holy Quran it, and we study them, we find that Islam actually gives or lays down huge uh, emphasis on helping uh, those who are vulnerable. Um, and uh, you know, even if they ask for help or they don't ask for help, it is the duty um, of uh, of the of the of the power of the authority over them to realize that who is in that kind of situation and to help them for example if we look at chapter 2 verse 84 of the holy quran allah the almighty instructs muslims to speak kindly at all times and to be considerate of the feelings of other people and to love protect vulnerable members of the society such as the orphan children or those living in poverty or destitution. For example, we we read in um, in in this chapter. Um, it says on it says in verse eighty four, and and remember the time we took the covenant from the children of Israel, that you shall worship nothing but Allah and show kindness to parents, and to the kindred 
and orphans and the poor and speak to men kindly and observe prayer and pay zakat then you turn away in aversion except a few of you and the other verse uh, which i wanted to mention is from chapter 51 verse 20 and in this verse uh, allah the almighty highlights that even those who do not ask for help um you know we or the person in authority over them they they, they should it is their duty to realize uh, what is their situation and to help them because honestly and uh, what we see is that not everyone will um openly say that they are in a difficult situation or they need some sort of help it is very difficult for a person to get out of that state and to ask someone for help so islam says in this in this verse that we should recognize um who is in who is in that state who actually needs help and then try to fulfill those rights it says in chapter 51 verse 20 and in their wealth was a share for one who asked for help and for one who could not so here the the holy quran states that the hallmark of a true muslim is that he should care for all of god's creations and should comfort and support those in need whether they whether they seek their help or not hence it is not enough for a muslim to wait until someone asks for help rather it is his duty to recognize the suffering of others and to make them whatever sacrifices are required in order to help them overcome their challenges or troubles and uh, we see that the holy prophet peace and blessing of allah the almighty be upon him he was a champion of this as uh, as the wife of the of the holy prophet peace be upon him mentioned that kana khulqul quran that he was an embodiment of the holy quran he whatever he taught he practiced himself and uh, the holy prophet peace be upon him he championed the rights of all people of all races and of all beliefs and he was a source of unparalleled mercy and grace for all of mankind and from every pore and fiber of his being uh, gushed forth an eternal spring of love and compassion for humanity for example on one occasion the holy prophet peace and blessing of allah be the almighty be upon him he has said that i am with the weak um, because abiding the weak and poor is the means of reaching allah the almighty and furthermore the prophet of islam he taught that uh, allah the almighty he was most pleased by those who helped the poor who filled their empty stomachs and who arranged medical treatments for them hence if a person claims to be a true muslim it is his obligation and overriding duty to assist all those who are facing difficulties and to elevate their distress and heartache and uh, also if we look at the life of the promised messiah peace be upon him the founder of the amdiya muslim community and throughout his life as well that he also you know followed he also um we see throughout his life that he also uh you know give due rise towards his creation towards god's creation and uh, wherever he could he served and helped mankind um and the promised messiah peace be upon him he at one place he says and i quote that 
my state is such that if someone is in distress whilst I am engaged in obligatory prayers and I hear their grief, it is my it is my adherent desire to break the prayer and to try to help that person and to shower them with as much love as possible. So here the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he says that even if I am offering my obligatory prayers, which is uh, when and when it comes for the time for prayers, it is said that you should leave all your work and you should focus towards remembering God Almighty. But here the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he says that at a place where, you know, if I am offering my obligatory prayers and I hear someone who is in distress or who needs help, he, he says that he will break his prayer and help that person and, uh, and you know, shower him with as much love as possible. So it's a beautiful quote of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. At another place, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he says that to help a brother in their time of need or difficulty is... Oh, sorry, to, to fail to help a brother in their time of need or difficulty is utterly immoral and wrong. So uh, th- that is uh, the Islamic perspective on this uh, particular particular subject. Uh, I also have a few um, abstract as well um, that I do wanted to read out. For example, uh, this abstract is taken from the book Absolute Justice, Kindness and Kingship and this was written by the 4th Caliph of the Amdiya Muslim Community um, Azam Azat Tahir Ahmed May Allah the Almighty have mercy on him He says that Allah has enjoined us to take care of a wide range of uh, rights of humankind Hence it is required that when Allah expands one's resources Oh, the reader of the Quran gives relatives their due rights and also gives rights to the poor who do not beg. Similarly, give due rise to the wayfarer. This is a beautiful teaching for those who require Allah's favor and always look towards Him, wondering how Allah treats them and whether He is happy with them or angry with them. People who do not accordingly, uh, people who do accordingly are the ones who are truly uh, redeemed and again the Quran it declares in chapter 4 verse 37 and I quote that and worship in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful and worship Allah and associate not with him and show kindness to parents and to the kindred and orphans and the needy and to the neighbor that it is a kinsman and the neighbor that is a stranger and the companion by your side and the wayfarer and those whom your right hand possesses surely Allah loves not the proud and the boastful. Um, and also, uh, he also said that, uh, or there's a quote from the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he said that, I do not like the words of those who limit their compassion to their own ethnicity. And he says that I advise you again and again to never restrict your sphere of compassion. And he further said, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, further said that you should extend your compassion to all of God's creation as if you are their blood relative, just like mothers are with their children. One who does not, uh, one who does good with natural passion like that of a mother can never be um, obstetious. Uh, 
So, you know, from these writings, we find that uh, Islam lays great emphasis on helping those, the, the vulnerable and the poor. And I mean, every, um, you know, we, we do mention this uh, saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, quite often I, I mention it that, uh, uh, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, at one place he mentioned that on the Day of Judgment, there will be two groups that will come before Allah the Almighty. And addressing one of the groups, Allah the Almighty, he will say to that group that uh, he was on when he was on earth, God says that when he was on earth, that he was thirsty or he was hungry. And addressing that group of people, he would say that you did not quench my thirst or you did not feed me. And that group of people being addressed, they would say that, oh, Allah the Almighty, when was it? that uh, you know you were thirsty and we did not quench your thirst or we did not give you food to eat and upon this Allah the Almighty he will reply that uh, such and such person of mine on earth he was hungry or he was thirsty and you did not quench their thirst or you did not provide them food had you quenched their thirst or you had helped them it would have been as if you had helped me and in this narration, it is mentioned that there will be also another group of people that will be, that uh, they will also be addressed by Allah the Almighty, and Allah the Almighty will say to them that uh, he was on his, uh, he was on earth, and uh, when he needed food or when he needed water, that group of people helped that person, or or they quenched their thirst, or they gave them food to eat, so. When God Almighty addressing this, uh, these people, he would say this, the group of people would say that when was it that on earth you were thirsty and we provided for you and we gave you food? And Allah the Almighty here, he would reply that on earth when he was, when such and such person of his was hungry or they needed food, that group of people provided food or water to quench that person's thirst or to feed them. Um, so from this narration, we find how dear it is to how dear it is in the eyes of Allah the Almighty to help the poor and 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 the vulnerable. As in in the narration, it says that had you fed them, it would have been as if you had fed me. That these are the words, or I'm paraphrasing here. These are the words which have been used in the narration. So from this, we find how dear it is to serve the poor and the vulnerable. Um, so with that, uh, dear listeners, we'll close this particular segment um, and we'll be going shortly into the 8 o'clock news now. Um, and after the 8 o'clock news, uh, we'll be looking at the topic um, shared values in religious in religion results in nations prospering. And uh, for this particular segment, we will be listening to Timothy Longman, who is a associate professor of uh, political science and international relations at Boston University, where he serves as director of the CURA, the Institute on Culture, Religion and World Affairs. So we'll be listening to him. Um, and afterwards, we'll be listening to Professor Darren. And Professor Darren, he writes widely on the history of religion, politics and culture in modern America. So we'll be listening to him. And finally, we'll also be listening to Professor Jake, who is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at UB. So that is uh, that is the uh, second segment that we'll be discussing. Um, 
But so don't go anywhere. We'll be back shortly after the news. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion, and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Peace be upon you and welcome back to The Breakfast Show. You are joined by myself, Tukin Ahmed and Imam Farid from here from the Voice of Islam studios. Um, we, ho- we hope that you're enjoying the show. Uh, we're going into our second segment now. Um, so Imam Farid, what is the gist of the story? If you can please explain. Yeah, so <coughs> the gist of the story is as follows. Shared values in religion results in nations prospering. So the gist of the story is that the in the UK in 2022 is a nation with a Hindu prime minister and a Muslim mayor of its capital city, London, that is. And few think it's odd. It is regarded as an achievement and something to celebrate. Most criticism, <coughs> criticism is political... <coughs> or even personal, but not mercifully ethnic or religiously motivated. It is certainly true that the face of spiritual life of the nation are changing, but cities such as Leicester, now with a minority white British population, demonstrate how people from radically different backgrounds have so much more in common than that which divides them. Despite politically motivated troublemakers attempting to disturb the peace, the spectacular Diwali celebrations are open in all the Leicester, and so should celebrations of faith be more widely. The relig- religions wax and wane, and in the end, do not make or break nations, whether those nations explicitly separate church or and state or not. It's values that count more than political institutions or even supernatural beings. Yeah, so uh, we did uh, discuss this uh, particular topic with one of our guests, uh, Tim Longman, um, who is an associate professor of political science and international relations at Boston University, where he serves as a as a director for of the institute on culture religion and world affairs so uh, without further ado let's let's listen to him so we do have with us on the line professor timothy longman associate professor of political science and international relations at boston university where he serves as director of cura the institute on culture religion and world affairs from 2009 to 2017 he served as director of BU's African Studies Centre. He teaches international human rights, introduction to comparative politics, African politics, Southern African politics, religion and international relations, religion and politics, and graduate seminars on transitional justice and religion and politics in Africa. He has led or taught in study abroad programs in Zanzibar, South Africa, Kenya, and China. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you, and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Professor. Thank you so much. It's nice to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. So first of all, we wanted to ask, in your view, is diversity of beliefs and religious or non-religious values important factors to have to ensure 
a more representative government for people with all backgrounds and beliefs? Well, yes. Um, one of the things we notice is uh, in countries that have diversity of religion, um, it's important to have representation, but it's actually better for religions to have uh, diversity. Um, the fact that you have a lot of different voices and that you can hear from people of different faiths and that people of different faiths have their voices respected it is something that it's not just good for the political system, but it's good for the, the religious communities as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so what do you think of separation of church from state? <clears throat> well, it, it's it's a very controversial topic, really. Um, <laughs> there are no countries that really have complete separation of, of church and state or of religion and politics. Um, the concept of secularism, as we talk about, of the secular state, is it's really a Western concept that gets imposed all around the world. But but even countries that claim to have um, strong separation of church and state, like the United States, often have mixing of religion and politics. Or or France, which you know claims that uh, it has a, a policy that that keeps religion completely in the private realm. In fact, they enforce rules that that tend to favor one religion over another. Um, so. Um, there's a value to not imposing a particular religion on the population. Um, the idea that, that there is diversity of religions, even even in a country that's largely one religion, there's diversity within that particular religion. There's debates and disagreements. Um, and so the, the thinking about the role that religion should play in politics, um, it, it's, it's generally better for personal liberty and for... Um, even religious liberty to to not have too close a relationship between church and state. Um, one of the most effective ways that religions can influence politics is really by influencing individuals. Um, they can you know uh, set a moral standard and encourage their adherents to bring their religion into their um, public life. Um, but when you have too close a connection, it, it's it's bad for the political system. But frankly, it's also bad for the religions themselves. Um, when we look at societies where religion has become much uh, less active. It's, it's often societies where the religion is too close to the state and uh, loses its loses its legitimacy as a result. Absolutely. So you just mentioned how France is known for being for separating church from state, and there is a ban of the head covering. Whilst in yeah. countries like Iran, we have seen the opposite. Should governments yeah. have a say? Should they d- dictate how individuals? choose to live their lives, would it not be better for the government to not interfere in the individual's lives? Yeah, this is exactly my point, really, is I think governments being neutral on religious issues is is much healthier for the society, for the political system, and and also for the religions themselves. Um, You know, if people believe in in, in their particular faith that you're promoting, they're going to follow the, the dictates. And if you can't convince them, then trying to force them through law to act in a certain way is not going to be healthy, whether it's saying you, you have to wear a headscarf or, or you can't wear a headscarf. You know, in the French case, of course, they claim that they're religiously neutral, but they ban the headscarf and yet allow students to wear crosses to school, um, which suggests really they're not as neutral as they're claiming to be. Um, what, what tends to be a, a much healthier situation really is when <clears throat> the state tries to um, create a, 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 an atmosphere where religious groups are allowed to thrive where they're not restricted, but also where they don't control everything and where people have free choice. There's, there's a lot of interesting models around the world. Um, Senegal is an interesting country where, you know, it's it's more than 90% Muslim, but there's a large Christian minority of about 5%. And there, the government works to try to discourage sort of extremist positions from emerging, but 
um, there's a lot of tolerance for the religious minority that's there and also for diversity within the Islam that exists there. Um, and it's a place where the government doesn't set strong religious laws. Um, it just tries to sort of create an atmosphere that encourages conversation and encourages respect for all religions. That, that to me, is a very kind of healthy model. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So do you think religion can ever be harmful in politics? Oh, I think they definitely can be harmful in politics. Um there's there's plenty of cases where religions have encouraged violence. I, I wrote a book on um, Christianity, well, called Christianity and Genocide in Rwanda, um, where I looked at the way in which the leaders of the Christian churches um, there became involved in helping to provide moral cover and justification for the horrible violence that took place. You know, over half a million people were killed in the genocide, and much of the killing took place in church buildings themselves in a country that, that was 90% Christian. Um, and so it's, it's an example of where, you know, religious leaders became too close to power. They benefited from the political system and their connections, and then they used that power in terrible ways. Uh, but there are other cases, you know, just across the border in Congo, where the, the same churches, the Catholic Church and some of the Protestant churches, have consistently spoken out for human rights and spoken out for uh, for uh, democracy um, and have consistently challenged the government, even at the danger of their own lives in some cases. Um, so the, the thing about religion is it's, there's no predetermined position it takes in society. It, it can uh, end up supporting authoritarianism, but it can also play an important role in challenging authoritarianism. So you know, religion is kind of an, an open canvas, and it depends upon the theology that's there, and it depends upon the leadership uh, to determine uh, where things go, and also the adherence. Um, what will the people of, of faith do in their communities? So uh, in answer to your question, yes, a- absolutely, religion can do horrible things, but it ho- also can do wonderful things. Thank you. That was beautifully summed up. Um, so why do you think um, in the 1994 genocide, why do you think this happened? Why why do so many Christians participate in this violence? Well, it, in the Rwandan case, um, it's really because the churches had these historic ties to the state and for decades uh, you know, the, the church came as a missionary church, um, and the missionaries worked closely with the colonial administrators, and they developed these close relationships, and they had always interpreted power in ethnic terms, um, and that really became part of their theology, was that it's important for the church to be very closely tied to the state, and then they taught obedience to the state. Uh, and so uh, even after colonialism, that didn't really change. You still had these very close connections between the church and state. The first president of Rwanda, uh, who took office in 1962, had been the personal secretary of the archbishop of the Catholic Church and had been the editor of the Catholic newspaper, um, was very closely tied in. And so you had these very close connections, um, and they didn't want to endanger that. Um, and they also got very much caught up in ethnic politics, and the church has played a major role in helping to define who was a member of the Hutu uh, ethnic group and who was a member of the Tutsi ethnic group. And so it's just a lot of things. When, when religion gets too close to power, it often gets compromised. Um, and then it can get caught up in, uh, in horrible, horrible events like, like the genocide. Thank you so much for sharing your insight with us today, Professor. It's been um, lovely speaking with you. And we'd love to speak with you again in the future. Great. I'd, I'd be happy to speak with you anytime. So have a, have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Professor Timothy Longman. Uh, we do have another guest uh, we do want to listen to as well, and this is Professor uh, Darren uh, Dehoek. And 
Professor Darren, he writes widely on history of religion, politics, and culture in modern America. And in addition, he is, in uh, addition to being an author of several books, he has also edited uh, several other books in American history, including most uh, recently the Routledge History of the 20th Century United States. Um, so without further ado, let's also listen to Professor Darren. We now have with us on the line Professor Darren Dochuk, who is the native of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, who has now served as the Andrew V. Tate College Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Dochuk earned his BA from Simon Fraser University and MA from Queen's University, Canada, before receiving his PhD from the University of Notre Dame in 2005. After completing his doctorate, he taught at Purdue University and Washington University in St. Louis before returning to Notre Dame as faculty. He writes widely on the history of religion, politics and culture in modern North America. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Professor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well, yes. Thank you so much. So, first of all, for the benefit of our listeners, could you kindly give a brief overview of the political and religious history of the United States of America? Uh, sure, I, I'd be happy to, uh, to attempt that. This is a big question, and uh, <laughs> it's one that uh, I will teach an entire course on for an entire semester. So, uh, But, you know, why don't I just highlight what I think are uh, some of the unique factors that make uh, religion and politics uh, so dynamic as, as kind of a collective uh, agent of change in American history, uh, certainly compared to other uh, regions of the world, uh, compared to Europe, for instance, uh, secularism has not really taken hold of the United States uh, in a way that it has uh, with, with, with other Western nations. So uh, why is that? Why is the God factor, if you will, uh, more important uh, and certainly impactful to American uh, politics? Uh, we can look to the history. I think there are a number of factors that I'll just highlight briefly. First of all uh, is the origins uh, of the United States. Now, of course, recognizing uh, the uh, presence of indigenous peoples uh, in North America uh, for generations and centuries before. Uh, nevertheless, with the earliest migrations to North America came uh, a, a pretty kind of committed group of religious colonizers uh, the Puritans being the most uh, famous or infamous of those, uh, those coming from uh, England uh, in the 17th century especially, uh, were themselves dissenting religious sects uh, from English Protestantism, which was dominated, of course, by an established Anglican church. Uh, and so they came to, the, to uh, what would become the United States uh, as dissenters, looking to uh, kind of practice uh, their religious freedom as they saw it defined by biblical practice. Uh, they wanted to set up their own kind of notion of a Christian commonwealth. And so uh, I think one of the key factors to understanding even present-day American religion and politics is the roots of this in, in Puritanism. Puritanism. Uh, these settlers, uh, especially in, in what is now New England, uh, settled with the, the sense that they were kind of going to shine a light to the world about what true Christianity could be. Uh, and quite famously, of course, they considered themselves constructing a city on the hill, uh, that the United States, that America itself was exceptional as God-ordained. So that, that would be one uh, kind of historical uh, factor 
behind what we see today as, as a nation that still sees itself very much in exceptional terms uh, to the world. Uh, other dynamics, uh, how, would, uh, how should we see religion and politics in America? Uh, even though Puritans sought to define uh, kind of what America would stand for uh, in, in relation to their beliefs in Scripture, uh, this has always been an incredibly dynamic religious pluralist uh, society. So from the very beginning, Puritans were not the only ones arriving in America. There were Protestant dissenters of other sorts, uh, from Baptists to Moravians, uh, but also Catholics and Jews. And so uh, the notion of right religious thinking and practice has always been contested. Uh, there has always been, as a result, uh, kind of not just a tension, but also a competition uh, for souls uh, and competition for influence. Uh, in American life. Uh, one historian has written about the early period of American history and calls his book a wash in a sea of faith. And that's very much what uh, America has always been, is, is, is a very uh, a place of uh, incredibly rich religious pluralism. Uh, briefly, a few other points that I would just highlight if we want to understand religion and politics and, and the history in the United States is disestablishment. Uh, because of the religious pluralism, the U.S. has always adhere to uh, what is, you know, held, uh, formalized in the Constitution as, as uh, a separation of church and state. So at least at a formal level, uh, religion has not been attached to government. But what that has done is, in fact, created a much more uh, dynamic uh, kind of democratic spirit of religious association and activism, uh, something that uh, outsiders like uh, French commenter uh, Alexis de Tocqueville back in the 19th century saw as unique to the United States uh, the, the importance of religious uh, democratic activism at the local level. Uh, and that leads to, I think, two other final points. One, marketplace dynamics. I think religion and politics in the United States have always been uh, very much dictated by kind of marketplace uh, uh, kind of rules of, of capitalism. Uh, this has been a place in which you win influence uh, by gaining uh, kind of your your market share uh, in, 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 in the marketplace itself, whether that be in terms of winning souls to your particular tradition uh, or gaining influence uh, through uh, political activism. So there's a sense of, of competition and entrepreneurialism uh, at the heart of American religion and politics. Uh, and then finally, I'll, I'll just highlight, I think, a point that has been uh, increasingly important in the 20th century to our present day, and that's changing demographics. Uh, this has always been, uh, again, uh, an incredibly dynamic, pluralistic society, all the more since the mid-20th century with immigration increasing from other parts of the world, uh, especially from Asia. Uh, and that has brought uh, new religious groups to the United States, non-Christian, non-Judeo-Christian, uh, and that has created, uh, again, and accentuated, I think, a tension deep in American history between who is considered an insider and who is considered an outsider. Uh, and that, I think, gets to really the heart of some of the tensions today that we see in American politics. Uh, the Republican right, for instance, being resistant uh, to immigration, uh, and in part because of fears that uh, what was considered kind of a white Christian America rooted in the Puritan vision of yesteryear is being eroded uh, by immigrant, uh, immigration and immigrant faiths to the United States. So 
you know, briefly, again, those are some of the tensions, uh, but those are some of the dynamics that are rooted deep in American history uh, that speak to where we are today uh, as a nation. Could you tell us a bit about your book, From Bible Belt to Sun Belt, and the rise of the new right and modern conservatism? Uh, for sure. So, you know, I spent considerable time uh, with my first book looking at uh, some of the themes that I just highlighted uh, in terms of why many Americans look to their nation as uh, kind of divinely ordained, uh, as blessed, uh, as, as, as kind of a special mission to the world uh, of what a true Christian commonwealth can look like. Uh, those notions are very much rooted uh, in the Bible Belt itself. This is a region that you could divide, uh, define uh, you know, loosely from, from Texas to South Carolina. Uh, and so uh, this book, From Bible Belt to Sun Belt, examined the, the migration of uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of uh, people from Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas especially uh, during the 1930s and 1940s. This is a period of, of course, wartime activism uh, to Southern California. Uh, that is uh, that was considered a kind of the the new shining example of a of a rising kind of political economy uh, in America during the 1940s wartime uh, investment in the state of California of course uh, helped this along uh, and so what I track is the the migration of these uh, plain folk evangelicals, as I call them, from Texas and Oklahoma to Southern California, uh, they brought their theology and their politics, which tended towards a very populist, libertarian uh, kind of approach, not just to spiritual practice, but also to understandings of the state, uh, to Southern California. And there they, they really benefited from kind of the, the, the striking rise in, in influence of this region in the post-World War II period. Uh, the, the product of that uh, from the 1940s to the 1970s and kind of Bible Belt Christians from Texas, Oklahoma, would uh, come to California and help lead the rise of a new Republican right, a new conservative movement uh, that at the state level uh, would be uh, kind of realized in the election of Ronald Reagan to the governorship of California in 1966, and then ultimately uh, in 1980, uh, the election of Ronald Reagan to the presidency of uh, of the United States. So this this is a movement of people. This is a movement of uh, political and religious philosophy to a region of polit political and economic strength that would ultimately lead uh, to a much broader kind of uh, reddening uh, republicanization of the southern rim of the country. And we're still living very much with uh, the the kind of byproducts of that demographic shift. In light of another book of yours, um anointed with oil. Could you kindly tell us how the oil industry transformed American religion, giving uh, American religion giving shape to modern evangelical Christianity during the rise of the Republican right? Well, my interest in, in oil and its relationship, and, and by oil, we're talking here about the petroleum industry uh, and evangelical Christianity, especially in the United States, uh, that interest comes out of my uh, book on uh, From Bible Belt to Sun Belt. Uh, you know, the more time you spend in Texas, Oklahoma, and, and Southern California, uh, what struck me as, as interesting and perhaps odd was uh, the frequency with which you saw a church steeple and an oil derrick. And, and I thought, well, what, what is the relationship between these two? Uh, and as I, you know, 
processed this through years of research and writing, uh, came to understand the relationship uh, between oil and religion, this anointing of America with oil uh, at a number of different levels. Uh, first of all, you know, kind of at this highest altitude. What, how is it that the United States, you know, really in the wake of the Civil War of the mid-19th century, uh, came to discover oil and, and came to really possess it and, and control this resource uh, for the next hundred years. And uh, oil was, as a result, in some ways theologized as, as kind of uh, a, a sign of, of divine blessing. Oil was a resource that would bring the nation to a new splendor, to a new authority on a global level. Uh, so that's one reason I, I call the book Anointed with Oil. Uh, but two other kind of altitudes of, of analysis here that I think are interesting. Uh, a middle altitude is really looking at the, the corporate and institutional structures of America to understand how the oil business itself uh, has been absolutely crucial uh, to the rise in influence and importance of a particular sector of American Christianity, and that is evangelical Protestantism. Uh, evangelicalism uh, is very much rooted in the Bible Belt South, uh, places like Texas, which would, by accident perhaps, become also the epicenters of oil production uh, in the early 20th century. So is it any wonder uh, then that uh, kind of the corporate structures of this place, of oil patch America, would come to um, kind of reinforce uh, this sense of blessedness, the, the notion that American petroleum was uh, not simply a material or economic resource, but something that spoke to really the soul of what America was. Uh, and that gets to the last point, and that is, uh, you know, just, just what is it like to live on an oil patch of North America, Oklahoma, Texas? Uh, this is a place where uh, the commitment to petroleum is, is again, extends beyond work and labor. Uh, this is a matter of, of, of uh, how you worship as well uh, on, on, on the oil patch of America. Proximity petroleum, in other words, uh, you know, creates a, a particular culture that welcomes evangelical Christianity, I think, that is, is quite unique. So the impact for today is uh, if we want to understand some of the political tensions over oil and, and kind of carbon-based uh, uh, extraction. Uh, we need to look at why Texas, Oklahoma, and other oil patches of North America, including Alberta, remain so committed to this resource. It's because it speaks uh, speaks to them not just in economic terms, but it is part of the DNA of the the pulpits and the pews of this region. So uh, that I think is is important to understanding uh, whether it's uh, Trump uh, populism or, or kind of an America first approach. Uh, to geopolitics that stresses the, the privilege and the priority of the United States to continue its commitment to extraction and exploration of oil. Thank you so much, Professor. That was very enlightening. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot about um, American political and religious history and how oil ties into Christianity as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. My privilege. Thank you very much. Uh, Nai Haizo, um, who is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at UB. Um, so we're just going to be listening to Professor Jake now. So we have with us 
Professor Jacob Neuheisel. And Professor Jacob is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at UB. And much of your research focuses on the effect of elite communication on members of the mass public. And also, I would like to mention that your work has also appeared in outlets such as the American Journal of Political Science, Political Research uh, Quarterly, and also Political Communication and Public Administration Review and Legislative Studies Quarterly. So thank you so much for joining us today at the Voice of Islam radio station. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. Fantastic. So let's get straight into it. And my first question that I wanted to ask you is that why have we been seeing a rise in the trend in the decline of religion? And what role has politics had on people leaving religion? A great question. It's something I've, I've done a number of pieces on now, and I think there are a number of researchers uh, working on. My, my own work tends to focus on the United States, but I am aware of, of similar efforts uh, abroad to, to look at this question. And I think most of us are, are coalescing around a, a similar answer, um, regardless of where we're looking, which is to say that uh, there is, are a number of factors that, that lead to a decline in religiosity or religious adherence. But uh, one of the ones that is increasingly standing out is uh, something of a political connection. So here in the United States, um, the connection of people's minds with um, the religious right and uh, far-right politicians and their connections with maybe the evangelical community in the United States are um, pushing people away from organized religion. You know, if they have a set of political commitments that are at odds with right-wing politics, they might say something to the effect of, oh, if what it means to be right-wing also is that you're religious, then maybe religion isn't for me either. And so I think that there's some of that going on at a, a wide level, which is to say that people are just observing those connections and then saying that religion isn't for them. I think, and this is where my research comes in, I think some of it's also more localized, which is to say that you know people go to their religious institutions, they go to their houses of worship, they encounter you know, differences of opinion, and those are actually the, the kinds of things that are driving them to, to reconsider their they're fit with religion as an individual. So uh, lots of explanations. Uh, there is a, a push toward secularization worldwide going on right now and has been for quite some time to, to varying degrees. But I do think that politics is, is one of the things we're seeing as a factor. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And what role can religion play on influencing politics and governmental policies? Uh, so again, it's going to vary depending on, on the country. Countries are going to have you know, restrictions on, on what kinds of religious communities have access to the public sphere, um, some more restrictions than others. Uh, here in the United States, I think it's, um, it's less of a direct effect than you might think. Um, certainly, there are religious lobbies in Washington, D.C. There are you know, religious groups that are pushing for certain kinds of changes. But I, I think that a lot of this, again, just my research is happening at a, a very localized level where you know, people are part of a religious community, and it's easy to think of these things as sort of top-down driven, where a religious leader you know, goes to the pulpit or goes to the front of the congregation and says, you know, look, this is the way you should be thinking about current affairs, politics, these kinds of things. And that certainly does happen. I also think a lot of it is just kind of sort of an organic spread of information. People in contact with each other, you know, they go to the same place every, you know, whatever their, their particular day is and they encounter political information that's relevant for participation, that's relevant for 
the ideas and beliefs that they hold. And so I think a lot of this really does come from a, a sort of bottom-up perspective where you have these communities where coalesce around certain kinds of issues, and that's what um, is, is taken to, to leaders, to politicians. And so it's, um, it's more of that kind of organic type of thing that, that percolates up from the bottom. Thank you. And how can religious communities affect political participation, such as, for example, the Latino community? So this is something I've done a, a lot of work on as well. Um, you know, one paper in particular on the, the Latino community here in the United States. But uh, there's a, a set of theories going back to the 1990s talking about, you know, what are the ways in which religion helps people to participate in politics? And, you know, certainly there are these interpersonal connections that are made where maybe somebody asks you to be active in politics. But another conduit through which we think religion can influence whether people are participating in politics is giving them a skill set. So you go to this place, you might have responsibilities, you have meetings that you might have to run if you're some kind of lay leadership or otherwise active in the leadership of the religious institution. And so there we think you build things like you know, civic skills and other types of things that you can take from the religious context and port into a more political one or, or more community-based one. So I think it works the same type of way, um, really across a lot of different faiths. Um, and we've seen a fair amount of kind of triangulation looking at different faiths that suggest that there is this type of impact, although it works very you know, somewhat differently depending on the, the particular faith we're talking about and the centrality of the religious institution itself, the house of worship itself, in their religious life. So there are levels of variability, but we think the primary conduit in a lot of them is going to be you go there, you have these encounters, and you know you get these skills that can then be used in other arenas, one of which being politics. Absolutely. Um, and how can we ensure there is more diversity in governments to ensure greater representation for people with all beliefs and background? And why do you think this is important? So um, I'm probably better on the second part of the question than the first one. But in terms of importance, you know, there's a lot of work from political science and, and cognate fields that talk about descriptive representation. And you know some of the ways in which that can matter would be you know, the extent to which people who share a particular kind of background, be that racial, ethnic, or religious, how they spend their time um, in the representative body. And so here in the United States, there's some research on African Americans. And even though their voting records might be very similar when they get into Congress to you know, other similar, uh, similarly ideological uh, whites or, or other uh, ethnicities, they spend more of their time on issues that are important to minority communities. And so it's not just how they vote, it's where they spend their time, it's the type of bills that they work on, it's the type of legislation that they help to shape, it's the type of things they do in their communities. And so descriptive representation on a couple of levels is reasonably important um, for a lot of the outcomes that we care about. Um, so I think that kind of feeds into the first part in terms of what we can do. And, um, you know, here in the United States, they've experimented with some different kinds of things. There was a period during which you know, it was possible, and, and it was a misreading of the, the court's uh, decision, but the court had talked about the creation of majority-minority districts or the purpose, purpose of creation of those. And that might be a net good thing in the sense that you know maybe you dilute party power a little bit, maybe you're not getting as many Democratic or representative 
uh, or, or Republican representatives out of a particular state, but those who are going to Congress or are going to the legislature are ones who disproportionately work on minority issues. And so maybe it's in the way we reshape district lines. If there's a geographic component to representation, maybe it's in terms of quotas. And so, you know, there's been a number of things that have been tried, um, none of which are, are a, a salve or, a, you know, a perfect kind of um, uh, way to deal with the problem. Uh, but the goal is, is laudable in terms of the, the research and that descriptive representation does matter. Great. And finally, do you think should religious communities influence their followers in politics and vice versa? So, you know, the should, the, the normative element, um, I'm kind of going to you know, throw my hands up at that. I don't know if they, they should or not, um, whether that's, you know, an ideal from a perspective of democracy or from governing, you know, should these kinds of things be allowed to be entered into the public sphere and really shape politics. You know, there's political theorists who go back and forth over those kinds of things. Um, some of them talk about how, look, if your position on a policy item is shaped by um, an appeal to something that is not readily verifiable by everybody, right? It's an appeal to a belief that you have. It's to, you know, a system that relates to the divine. Um, then it's not something that everybody can have a conversation about, and therefore you might have some troubles entering that into the public discussion about politics and policy. So, you know, there's, on the normative element, there's debate, but in terms of the practical, is this kind of thing happening? Uh, religion absolutely shapes the way people vote, the way pe people participate in politics, and it happens a lot of levels. It's in terms of the affiliations that they have, the people they're in contact with, but it's also in terms of you know beliefs that they've developed um, through a religious belief system uh, that are translated into politics. Great, uh, Professor Jacob Nyhazel, thank you so much for joining us today at the Voice of Islam radio station and sharing your expertise on this particular subject. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Thank you so much. Um, uh, so, so that was a interview from uh, with Professor Jacob Nyhazel. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just going to now be covering the Islamic perspective of this particular topic. Uh, but before we do dwell into that, if any of our listeners do want to get in touch with us, they, they can certainly do so by calling us on 0286877878. Or they can tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK. So in this uh, particular segment, we are looking at uh, religious tolerance. And, um, we're, you know, in the world where we live in, where, uh, you know, people have different... Um, religious beliefs uh, they come from different backgrounds uh, what does islam say you know how should we live in a society uh, where you know everyone has a different belief so you know it is our firm belief uh, that uh, ever since the world came into being allah the exalted um, he has been raising prophets in every people and their mission has always been to guide mankind to its creator and to establish good deeds. And uh, it says in the Holy Quran, when we look at chapter 16, verse 37, God Almighty says in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, and we have sent, or and we, and we did raise among every people a messenger with the teaching, worship Allah and shun the evil one. Then, then among them was some whom Allah guided, and there and among them was some who became deserving of ruin. 
so travel through the earth and see uh, what end what was the end of those who treated the prophets as liars so in this uh, particular passage or abstract we've just read out from the Holy Quran you know the the Holy Quran it highlights that to every nation uh, God Almighty to every people God Almighty has sent a messenger and according to this verse uh, neither can we Ahmadi Muslims deny any of the prophets nor can we ridicule them because we are ordered to stay away from such people who talk against the prophets and uh, some prophets are mentioned by name in the Holy Quran and we also find that prophets there are prophets also mentioned in the Holy Bible as well so we believe um, in these prophets uh, but according to the verse of the Holy Quran uh, which have which has just been recited we also believe that uh, there were prophets among the Hindus the Chinese and other nations as well and this is a basic point which Allah the Almighty has taught us to be sensitive about the feelings of others and to pay proper respect to the prophets of other nations whom an inclination to perform good works sprouts forth and with whom attempts can be made to establish peace. So looking at this verse we see that or as a Muslim we see that in order for us to be a Muslim, not only should we believe in the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing of Allah the Almighty be upon him, but as a Muslim, it is our you know belief that we should also we also believe in Hazrat Abraham, peace be upon him. We also believe in uh, Hazrat Isa, Jesus, peace be upon him. Um, we believe in in um, in every basically all we have to accept all prophets, and this is the teachings of Islam, and it is such a beautiful teaching that uh, we cannot deny that uh, all these prophets came from God Almighty and and they brought their whole purpose was to bring man towards his creator and uh, create that recognition and also the Holy Prophet peace be upon him he has taught us not only to respect the very high status of prophets but to also respect the leaders of other nation as this is a factor among others and that also contributes to the maintenance of peace. And uh, also, if we look at the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he also respected people of all other religions, um, you know, regardless of their faith. For example, it is narrated that once in Medina, a Christian group, they came from Najran, and they came to meet the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and while they were meeting the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, it was their time for their prayer, but uh, they did not have a place to perform it. And while seeing this, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, told them not to worry. And his mosque was, and he said that his mosque was for worship of God, and so they could perform their worship there. And from this narration, this is how peace is spread and interfaith relations are strengthened. And this is the teachings of Islam which is being misrepresented nowadays. And the name of Islam itself means peace. So if if uh, a Muslim disregards this teachings or he or she cannot be called a true Muslim, a true Muslim is he, uh, is, is one for, from whose tongue and hands others are secure. And the Holy Quran teaches that there is no compulsion in religion. 
and we must listen to people of all faiths and this is what mutual peace this is what brings mutual peace and we should respect the human values of one another and even though there are many who pray uh, and they do not care for the poor and orphans such people's worship goes in vain and true worship is that which is accepted and is one one also looks after the rights of others and we should have tolerance and respect for each and every human being Manfred you, you want to add anything on this I uh, yeah, sure so basically as far as the ethnicity and color of people is concerned Quran beautifully explains the fact that it doesn't matter from which country or which color you belong to uh, it says in the Holy Quran chapter 49 verse 14 that ya ayyuhan nasu inna khalaqnakum min zakarin aw unsa ajwalnakum shuban wa qabaila litaarafu and the verse goes on but i'll just read the uh, translation and translation is oh mankind we have created you from a male and a female and we have made you tribes and sub-tribes that you may know one another Verily, the most honor, honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you. Surely Allah is the all-knowing, all-aware. So this verse of the Holy Quran clearly shows the fact that the only way you could be superior to your fellow, you can say, Muslims or even non-Muslims or any other person from any other, any other ethnicity is that if you are righteous, so Allah Ta'ala only cares about righteousness. He doesn't care about how you look or where are you from or what do you eat. And furthermore, it, the Holy Prophet, may peace and, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he also mentioned this uh, particular thing in, the, in his last sermon delivered uh, on the day of Hajj, that he says that, O oh, oh people, lend me an attentive ear, for I not whether and I know not whether after this year I shall be amongst you again. Therefore listen carefully to what I am saying, and take these words to those who could not be present here today. And he says furthermore that Allah has forbidden you to take usury, therefore all in trust obligation shall henceforth be waived. Your capital is yours to keep and you will neither inflict nor suffer any inequality so he talks about inequality and you can say suffering at the hands of other people furthermore he says that as far as the rights of other uh, you can say people are concerned that oh people it is true that you have certain rights with regards to your women but they also have rights over you remember that you have taken them as your wives under allah's trust and with his permission, if they abide you your right, then to them belongs to the right to be fed and clothed in kindness. Do not treat women well, oh, do treat women well, and to be kind to them, for they are your partners and committed helpers. And it is your right to do, to do not make friends with any of the ones whom do not, uh, you do not approve. And furthermore, he says that, O oh people, listen to me in earnest. Worship Allah and say your five daily prayer fast during the month of Ramadan and give zakat or charity 
and perform pilgrimage or hajj and finally he says that all mankind is from adam and eve an arab has no superiority over a non-arab nor a non-arab has superiority over an arab also white has no superiority over a black nor a black uh, has a superiority over white except for that you are righteous and do good deeds so even the prophet of Allah, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, also explains the fact that there is no superiority when it comes to the color and the race. And furthermore, as far as the the spending in the way of Allah is concerned, it's also a way in which we can serve other people. So it says in the Holy Quran that it is not righteousness that you turn your faces to the east or the west, but truly righteous is he who believes in Allah and the last day and angels and books uh, and the prophet and now this is important part and spends his money for the love of him and to the kindred and orphans and needy and the wayfarer and those who ask for charity and ransoming the captives and who observe prayer and pray and pays the zakat and those who fulfill their promise when they have made one and the patient in poverty and afflictions and the steadfast in time of war it is these who have proved truthful and it is these who are the god-fearing and in the commentary uh, it's explained that this verse affords another example of this kind of expression Wabnis uh, Sabila or the son of road as uh, literally it means and explain means a traveler and explain under the important as you can say explained earlier that the this expression gives no less than four meanings and what are those four meanings firstly it says they're spending money in order to encourage traveling which is a means of increasing knowledge and extending social relationships secondly helping such travelers uh, as are on long journey and are f- far away from their home thirdly says that helping all wayfarers and fourthly helping such wayfarers and travelers as become stranded on the way so zakat or charity in other words is basically taken from the uh, rich and give it to the poor and the biggest problem of this world right now in the 21st century is money so the rich is becoming rich and the poor is becoming poor so the islam has made incumbent upon the people who obviously are well off that they need to pay charity and zakat and this is uh, has to be collected it's no option that you can you can say run away from it so you uh, the money some of the money only 2.5 percent or, uh, as far as the money is concerned will be taken from them and given to the poor now as far as the rich people are concerned 2.5% might not you can say damage them a lot as far as financial you can say uh, finances are concerned but for a person who is poor that 2.5% means a lot it means that he might be able to you can say spend a month very yeah, very well and he would buy food he would be able to buy food and well uh, if you're living in uk then warm home would be the best thing that you can spend that uh, money so islam always 
cares about people around and he and it uh, enjoins the believers to do pay charity and to help others so thank you for that Imam Farid um, and all that uh, will close this particular segment we'll also like to once again thank uh, Professor Timothy Longman Professor Darren and Professor uh, Jacob for their contribution today at the Voice of Islam um, for covering this subject on shared values and religion results in nations prospering um, so we'd like to thank them uh, also uh, we'd like to take this opportunity to thank the producer Meliha Abdullah and her team of researchers Sayyidah Hina Saud Saleh Bakhtiar uh, Neha and Tuba for their work um, and also uh, lastly um, we'd also like to thank uh, brother Shafiq from the tech side uh, for uh, for working hard in the background so thank you to brother Shafiq for his hard work uh, we do hope that you've enjoyed the show today um, and uh, do also tune in to the drive time show today from 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, but here from the studios, uh, from us, uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessing of Allah the Almighty be upon you all.